I don't often preach from 1 Timothy. In fact, I don't know that I ever have. In an earlier chapter, it has this pesky passage about women learning best in silence and never teaching or preaching. So for a woman in my line of work, it just isn't one of the books of the Bible I've chosen to spend much time with on this side of my ordination. Though believe me, I spent plenty of time wrestling with it in other seasons of my life. But I'm convicted every now and then when I come across a passage like 1 Timothy 6 that contains so much practical wisdom alongside such beautiful imagery. I'm convicted that really I'm missing out. Now, we're not, we're not shy here about acknowledging the ways that Scripture has so often been misused, interpreted in ways that have led to oppression, to abuse of women and of various other groups throughout history. But even those writings that have been used in such harmful ways were still considered to hold enough truth, to be enough of a prism shining the light of God's truth onto our lives, that they were included in the canon and we do ourselves a disservice when we write them off entirely. This particular letter is supposed to have been written to Timothy from Paul, or from someone writing in the tradition of Paul, but I'm just going to call him Paul because someone writing in the tradition of Paul becomes cumbersome after a while. It's here in this letter that we encounter the wisdom teaching that has been quoted and misquoted for centuries, that The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's probably the most well-known line from this passage. And if you were ever asked by the Stewardship Commission to preach a sermon that would rouse congregants into giving, which to be clear, I was not, it might be a great place to start. It's a helpful reminder for us as individuals to be wary of the idols that we place in our lives, the way that we can allow money, the love of money, and all that money represents to creep into those places of priority. We are all worshiping something. As a congregation, we also have a responsibility to think hard and to think deeply about our collective relationship with money. There is as much temptation to fall in love with security as an organization as there is on an individual level. So, now it's important for me to stress that I really wasn't asked to preach about money today because you're going to come to worship next Sunday or any Sunday in the next month, and you're going to see that we have a moment set aside for the Stewardship Commission to share some reflections with you. And I know you, you're skeptical. You're going to look back at this moment and think, they were playing us, she was in on it. (laughs) But I want to be sure you know it's in spite of the fact that obviously I'm in on that. I know what's coming. But still, I decided to choose this passage from the lectionary. Because it's just too important that we have a shared framework for reflecting on our collective relationship with money before we begin the work of determining what our individual contributions will be. So yes, this passage really did just come up in the lectionary for this week. I really value the lectionary because of things like this, because of the ways that it sometimes tends to serendipitously line up with where we are as a congregation. There are many, probably some in this room, who might consider themselves to be spiritual, but not religious. 
And I say it's likely they're in this room because a recent study by the Barna group found that there are two different groups, those who are disenchanted with the church and those who are disenchanted with religion entirely, both making up equal percentages of the population and both groups are continuing to grow. Folks like this look at the church and they wonder about where our priorities are. Maybe they're not convinced that the church hasn't fallen in love with money, that it hasn't been the root of all kinds of evil in the church's life. And they wouldn't be wrong, not on the broad scale. I think sometimes we fall into the trap of believing that just because we can recognize a failing on the part of everyone everywhere else in the larger church, that we're not also susceptible to it. Jesus was very wary of money, and we ought to be, too, constantly. We need people on our stewardship commission. We need people in leadership who will be the voice of Jesus, the checks and the balances that remind us where our priorities are. Now, those spiritual but not religious folks might also examine our choice to use the lectionary, which I value because it calls me to preach on passages I might never think to preach on. But they might look at it and notice that the lectionary itself sometimes seems to be a part of the problem. They might notice that the lectionary passage for today begins in verse 6, in the middle of a paragraph, with the phrase, of course. Of course, there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. The grammatically astute among us are already thinking you don't use of course to begin a thought. Clearly, it's referring back to a line of thinking that was already in progress. Well, I'll be honest, reading this passage with my cynical lens on, with the lens of those who find much to be skeptical about in the church, it didn't look good for the folks who planned the lectionary that they chose to begin the reading here instead of backing it up a few verses. And since we are not bound to reading only the verses the lectionary gives us, I'm going to read us a few lines that precede our passage. Whoever teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that is in accordance with godliness is conceited, understanding nothing, and has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words. From these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among those who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Well, there's the phrase that's being referenced with that, of course. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Reading the verse in context is really the only way to understand the point that's being made right out of the gate. Paul is saying that, of course, there's nothing wrong with piety when it's combined with contentment, but not when, as in the case of Timothy's community, there are religious leaders trying to sway the community with their public displays of piety, trying to use it to make money off of them. So it seems like this is a passage about being content with what we have. And that sounds like a solid teaching. But if we were the kind of church that brought our Bibles with us and you were looking at it, you might have noticed that when I started verse 3, it begins with whoever teaches otherwise. 
But the grammatically astute among us are thinking, what does otherwise refer to, and is she really going to back us up even further? The answer is yes. And it matters, because context matters. So we back up some more, and this is where I think we might lose a lot of our spiritual but not religious folks. And I get it. Because when Paul says, whoever teaches otherwise is just stirring up trouble, the otherwise is referring to this teaching in verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these duties. Whoever teaches otherwise and doesn't agree has a morbid craving for controversy. You can see how that doesn't look great for the folks who put together the lectionary. It's like they went out of their way to keep us from making the connection. That what Paul is referencing is this teaching that anyone who finds themselves a slave really ought to honor their master, especially if the master is a Christian. Now there's a lot to nuance here, or at least there's a lot that can be nuanced. We have another example in the New Testament of Paul writing to a slave-owning Christian in a way that encourages him to set the slave free to see one another as beloved, as equal. So I want to put this passage up against that one. And it's also worth acknowledging that the slavery that was a part of this community's life in the ancient Near East is not exactly the same as the chattel slavery that is a part of our history in the United States. But neither is it entirely different. What I find the most difficult or what I imagine that our friends who are more skeptical of religion might find the most difficult, is the way that Paul describes those who are teaching anything contrary to his views as conceited, understanding nothing, and having a morbid craving for controversy. This sounds like a passage that is anti-intellectual, afraid of discussion, afraid of critical reading or thinking, because it knows it can't stand up to it. And where's the integrity in that? Where's the integrity in a church that wants to begin its readings a few verses later and so un avoid this whole uncomfortable conversation? A full half of those who identified as spiritual but not religious in that same Barna study agreed with the statement Religion is mostly harmful. Not that it can be harmful. Religion is mostly harmful. So even if those folks have kept themselves free from the love of money and they're ready to give it all away, why would they want to give it to a church that does more harm than good? In this moment, we might be tempted to ask ourselves, if our spiritual but not religious friends, if anyone doesn't want to give to a church like that, why should they give to our church? We're different. And my answer is, that's the wrong question to ask. 
the question we have to ask for the sake of our integrity is how we can continue becoming a church that is worth giving to in the first place. And I say continue becoming because I know that integrity is a part of what this community has been about since its inception. But we are always becoming, which means that we always have the potential of becoming worse than we have been. It also means that we always have the potential of becoming better. Northminster now has 30 years behind it, and who knows how many more years ahead. How do we ensure that we will continue to become a church that is worthy of the hard-earned money that's given to it? That answer comes at the end of the passage. Paul returns to language about money, saying that for anyone in the present age who has found themselves with some wealth on their hands, it's important that they not be haughty, that they not set their hopes on their riches, uncertain as they are, but rather on God. That their money is not value neutral. Because they have it, they are to do good with it, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, and thus to take hold of the life that really is life. As a congregation, we find ourselves with some wealth on our hands. We may not feel like it individually, but when we come together, when we bring together the gifts we each have to offer, it's a lot of money. And I, for one, am grateful that you are not afraid to talk about it. One of the things I love about this church is that you don't call your budget a budget. It's called a financial ministry plan. As a reminder that every dollar spent, every decision made, is meant to be a part of the overall ministry this church is accomplishing. And what is that ministry? Well, if it's not taking hold of the life that really is life, then I don't know what we're doing here. In the Gospel of John, which also emphasizes life, true life, abundant life. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know me and that they know the one who sent me. Knowing God, this is the life that really is life. And of course, that's going to look different for each of us. In our Wednesday night study of Barbara Brown Taylor's Holy Envy this week, we found ourselves asking the question, how does your faith change the way you live? Religion has a pretty bad track record of affecting how people live for the better, and plenty of evidence that it affects how people live for the worse. To take hold of the life that really is life, to know God and to know the one who embodied God's love so fully. It ought to go deeper than our minds and sink down into our hearts, our hands, and our feet. Only when that is happening are we continuing to become a church with integrity, a church that is worthy of anyone's financial support. 
So as we move into a season of discerning together what is ours to do in the financial ministry plan of the church for the year to come, and as we seek out the funding to make that ministry plan a reality, may we only do so in the spirit of taking hold individually and corporately of the life that really is life. May nothing else ever get in the way of that. Amen.